All right. So basically, I'm one of those, you know, born entrepreneurs slash salesmen from the time I emerged my mother's womb. At the age of eight, I had a paper route. I was knocking on doors to expand it. I had one of the biggest paper routes in New York City at the age of 10. And then my mother forced me to sell the route to my upstairs neighbor because she thought I was knocking on so many doors, she thought I'd be a salesman. They hated salesmen, right? And she forced me to sell it. I sold it for $100 and retired at the age of 10, right? $100, my first big sale, right? My retirement didn't last long, right? At the age of 10, I started knocking on people's doors after massive snowstorms and offered to shovel their driveway for $20 a pop, right? Now, this is before Al Gore created global warming, right? And the internet, but it used to snow like crazy back in the day, right? And you have these massive snowstorms, and I just go out and knock on that. I grew up poor, by the way, in an apartment building, right? Did not grow up rich, but about a mile away with the rich people, with the big houses, and I knock on their doors, offered a shovel of driveways, made a lot of money for two or three winters, and then Al Gore fucked me, and that was that, right? Retired again at the age of 13. I'm watching TV, I see David Copperfield. You know the magician, David Copperfield, right? David Copperfield, I watch him make the Statue of Liberty disappear. I'm like, fuck, I want to be a magician, right? So what do I do? I do the obvious thing. I put an ad in the local, what we called back then the Penny Savers before the internet, long before the internet, right? So I put an ad in the Penny Saver saying, children's parties, the amazing Belfort, $25. I didn't know how to do fucking magic, right? I didn't think anyone would bother calling, but the phone starts ringing off the hook. I panic and I told my father, Dad, I made a mistake. And here's the thing about my father. He passed away a few years ago, but you know, he wasn't an entrepreneur, didn't love sales, but he never held me back. He always like, sort of when I did things, he was like always happy for me. And he took me into the city and he bought me some tricks at some great magic store. Some of my greatest memories still, my dad are back in those early days. And I actually became the amazing Belfort. I did these children's parties, the Harry Potter hat, the wand, the whole thing, right? I did that for three years, made some decent money. And then I hit it big at the age of 16, I made a lot of money. I started going down to the local beach. I don't know anyone's been to New York yet. Anyone been visiting New York? There's a beach called Jones Beach, which is like, you've never seen anything like this, right? On a hot summer, sunny day, there'll be one million people on Jones Beach. A million people, right? And they're all lined up blanket to blanket. I was there one day, I was 16 years old, and I'm watching everyone bitching and moaning because the concession stand is a long walk up to the boardwalk. And I say, I wonder what happened if I just brought some ices and ice cream down to the water and sold them for a buck a piece. That was my idea. Next morning, I wake up, I look in the yellow pages, back to the yellow pages back then, I find some local distributor, right? Not far from my house. I go down, and I buy a white styrofoam cooler for $7. I load it up with ice cream and ices, the cooler fully loaded was $22. I go down to the beach, I walk along the shore yelling out Italian ices, chiffers. I sell the cooler out in one hour for a $120 profit. This is 1978, when minimum wage is $1.35 an hour. I made $120 in one hour. So what did I do? Next day I went back with four coolers, right? And I sold those and made $500 the next day. The first summer I made $26,000. Back then, it's like now it's like probably 60,000 in two months, right? And it changed my life forever. Changed my life. And here's the thing Jones Beach is a massive beach, right? So it's so big, I couldn't possibly saturate it. So I had four of my friends. I said, hey, guys, come down, let me show you what to do. You can go out and make all this money. And here's the weird part of four people I brought down there, three of them would sell one cooler and stop. They never sold more than one cooler in a day. They're one cooler guys. Only one of them was a four cooler guy. Now, why is that? Like, I thought they were nuts. Like, why did my friend so lazy? But the truth is here, and I'll show you exactly what it was. This is where you start to see this stuff really play out in the real world. It was all about this, standards. Those three of my friends, they had low standards for success. They didn't care that to them, fuck, $100? more than I'd make in a month working. Why should I do any more? So to them, they sold one, it made sense, one and stop. I wanted more, I wanted to be rich, I wanted to buy a nice car, I wanted to put myself through college. So this stuff, you see it play out all over the place. Like if you're a salesperson and you have a low standard, you know what happens? You could be the most talented closer, but you're not gonna be the top producer because you'll hit your quota that makes you feel good and you'll stop. And if you own a company, you're wondering why you have some salesman who is supremely talented but won't do what you know they're capable of, 
You need to raise their standards. And I'll get into that later on. At the end, I'll, I'll, I'll circle back to that. So I did that, put myself through college, right? And then I had one misstep on the road to entrepreneurial success. Believe it or not, I spent one day in dental school. Why the fuck I went to dental school here? I'll tell you why. Because the time I was two years old, and one year old, sitting in the high chair, my mom would spoon feed me applesauce. She'd like, the only noble way to be wealthy is to be a doctor, a dentist. Like fucking hypnosis, doctor. As the applesauce is going in, doctor, dentist, right? She wanted me to be a doctor. Right now, when I was 21 years old, graduating college, if you asked me what I wanted to do for a living, I would say, I want to be rich for a living. I didn't know what, who knows what they want to do with 21, very few people, right? So I had an uncle who was a dentist, so I could have been a doctor or a dentist. I did very well in school. I applied to both, got in, but I said, if I'm gonna be a doctor, that's eight to 10 more years, I'll kill myself. I wanna be rich right now. So I figured dentist four more years, I'll still be Dr. Bell, my mother will be happy, I'll be rich and that'll be that, right? So I apply, I get in, my first day of school, I walk into this auditorium, there's 100 kids there, right? The dean goes up on stage, he's got this white jacket, white hair, very dental looking, right? And he goes, I wanna welcome you all to the Baltimore College of Dental Surgery, you should be proud to be here, dentistry is a wonderful profession, you know, give yourself a round of applause, and everyone starts clapping, I'm looking around like, all right, so far, so good, right? All the kids are pretty bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, right? He goes, but, but let me say this. He goes, the golden age of dentistry is over. If you're here to make a lot of money, you're probably in the wrong place. I'm like, what the fuck, I'm in the wrong place. And I got up and I left, and I walked out, dropped out my first day, right? I didn't tell my mother that I hid down for like four months down in Maryland. Finally, my money ran out. I had to get real, and I took a job. I answered a blind ad for sales. And that's why I got into the world of influence sales, because everything I'd done before that was mostly about hard work and sheer perseverance. This was very different. I answered an ad. I don't know if you have this. I don't think you have this business in Australia, but it's selling meat and seafood door to door frozen steaks and shrimps and lobsters, and you knock on people's doors and you try to sell them frozen meat and shrimps, right? It's a stupid business, but that was the ad that I answered, right? And when I walk into this warehouse, it's like a warehouse, and there's these kids walking around in jeans and sneakers, and they're like, like kind of truck drivers, that was the mentality, and they had these wooden freezer boxes in the back, and the training program was three days long, and they put me in a truck, the training program was to go in and drive around with another salesperson, and this guy's nickname was the Penguin, because he walked like a, with a stick up his ass, like a fucking waddling penguin, right, like down in Antarctica, right? And the Penguin, I get in the truck with the Penguin, and he goes, listen, this, there's only, Two things you need to know to be a salesman. Number one, you always gotta stay pumped up and positive. You gotta be positive. And that made sense to you. You, know, you gotta be a positive person. You can't get negative, right? That's number one. Because the second thing is, no matter how many doors you knock on, how many get slammed in your face, always end up saying, have a nice day. I'm like, why? Because it makes you feel better about yourself. I'm like, all right, whatever, right? And we drive about an hour north of New York City. The penguin jumps out of the car. He waddles up to the first door. Waddle, waddle, waddle. I go, just follow me, right? And he goes, that very confident knock on the door, right? Door opens up. She goes, can I help you? He's like, hi, I'm Elliot. I do the mean slam. He's like, have a nice day, because it's fine. It happens sometimes, right? We go to the next door. Comes up, knock, knock, knock. Waddle, 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 right? Door opens up. Hi, I'm Elliot. Slam. He's like, have a nice day, right? Well, this guy knocked on literally probably 75 doors between like 10 o'clock and one o'clock and door after door after door got slammed in his face. And I watched this penguin like just waddle up from door. I'm like, wow, I'm like, this guy's good. I mean, this guy has this waddle going on and he's so confident with his shoulders pulled back and every high and like, they the meat and seafood to your neighbors. I'm like, slam, have a nice day. He did that for hour after hour until somewhere around like 1.30, I noticed something strange happened, right? Suddenly the stick falls out of his ass, his shoulders come forward, he kind of lumbers up to a door, and he barely even knocks, like the non-closers knock, he barely knocks. The door opens up, and he looks at the woman, she, she's like, you wouldn't want any filet mignon, shrimp, and lobster tails, right? The last 50 people said no, so I assume you're gonna say no too, so can you just say no and get it out of the way? Now he didn't say those words, he didn't have to. It was oozing out of, you could just tell like that this guy hadn't closed the sale in quite some time, if ever, and he was so negative that you would never 
like entertain what he was selling. He was no enthusiasm, no certainty. I'm like, wow. I'm like, does this guy know how crappy he sounds suddenly? Now, at the moment, I wouldn't have called it him losing his state of certainty. I would say his neck got negative. That was the, the layman's term for it, right? And I watched as the day progressed, and he got worse and worse and more negative and less certain, and just it was, and he didn't close a single sale. He didn't sell a single box. We got back to the warehouse the next day, and I guess they thought maybe I would leave if I went out with this guy again, and he zeroed out. So then instead of me going through three, I said, you know what, you're ready to, now. We're gonna give you a truck and 35 boxes of meat, right? We expect you to sell six to seven boxes a day. It's a five to six day week, okay? And, and you come back when you're done, and you can refill up and get more meat next week. I said, okay, great. So they gave me 35 boxes. I took the truck and drove up states of some area, wealthy area with big homes. I figured, well, the wealthy people can buy more meat, right? First door, I knock on, knock, knock, knock. Door opens up, kind looking woman, can I help you? And something really strange happened. For the first time in my life, I realized I had a real serious gift for selling. I mean, real selling, persuasion, closing. And the words started coming out of my mouth so perfectly like, I don't even know why. It was like a gift from God, seriously. And I just, like, I felt in deep rapport. She was laughing. She loved me. She, I was making jokes. She's, and the first woman bought 13 boxes of meat from me, okay? Now, she lived alone. She probably fucking still has them 38 years later, okay? Seriously, right? And it was called a baker's dozen, buy 12, get one free. And the first day, I sold all 35 boxes of meat. I almost sold one woman the truck, actually, right? And when I got back the next day to the West, I'm like, what'd you do with the fucking meat? Did you sell it to your friends? I'm like, no, I sold it to strangers. They're like, bullshit. I'm like, I sold it to strangers. They didn't believe me. They gave me 45 boxes of meat. I sold all those out the second day, right? Just massive sales. I was like, whatever I knocked on, people just couldn't say no to me. It was bizarre, right? The first week I sold 260 boxes of meat. Shattered the industry record, right? And I noticed two things. Number one, is suddenly everybody in the office started doing more. The belief was shattered about what was possible in a day. Simply because I was selling 40 boxes a day, suddenly five or six boxes didn't seem like a lot. That was number one. Number two, I said, you know what? These guys don't know what the fuck they're doing. Half the time they're missing stuff in the freezer, it's disorganized. I could do this myself. And after four weeks of working there, I started my own business, a real business. And I was 22 years old now, 21, just turned 22. And I named it Manchester Farms because it sounds like a good name, right? It sounds like a trustworthy name. Manchester Farms Meat and Seafood Corp., right? I built myself a freezer box, bought a truck, found the meat and fish supplier, and started knocking on doors myself and making the double markup and was smashing it. So what did I do? I bought a second truck. I said, let me train someone. And I realized now that, wow, I have a knack for training people. As good as I was at closing, I was even better at training. I could train people. I trained the first person. They started doing really well, closing 20 boxes a day. So I bought a third truck and started training a third person and a fourth person, a fifth person. Before I knew it, within seven months, I had 26 trucks on the road. I was making a ton of money, I thought. But actually, I was making every mistake that a young entrepreneur can make. I was overexpanding. I was undercapitalized. I was growing on credit, meaning I was getting terms from my supplier and using the float to buy more, in, to buy more trucks and so forth. I really didn't understand. I, I went to school to be a doctor. It wasn't like it is now. Now you have no excuse. All the information you could ever want is available at your fingertips online. Got any questions? Just ask ChatGBT. They'll fucking tell you. <laughs> Seriously, if you want to just call it brutally honest, how do I be not one of the seven rules of starting off? He'll tell you fucking everything, that fucking AI. It's amazing. But this course is available. This mentorship program is like one life. This, this, this company itself is all about that. Tapping into successful people, mentorship. It's all available. There's no fucking excuse. There's anyone sitting there, guys, there's no excuse. Could I say guys is generic, guys, girls, right? There's no excuse right now. Anything you need, whether it's in running a business, starting a business, closing sales, marketing online, marketing offline, the inner game of success, 
Shame on you if you don't tap into it and become proficient. You don't need to be an expert. You need to be good enough and then become an expert at the few things that your industry requires. One of them will be selling for sure at Influence. But generally speaking, it's all there for you, right for the taking. I don't care whether you went to Harvard or fucking Hell's Kitchen University. It doesn't matter anymore. We don't live in that kind of world anymore. Success is there for anybody who wants it, who's willing to essentially get their inner game straight and learn these skills for the outer game. But that didn't exist when I was growing up, and I fucked up. And I went bankrupt because of it. Because if you don't obey the rules of success and the rules of, you're gonna feel pain, you're gonna get tortured, you'll grow too fast, you won't understand cash flow, and bam, you're out of business. That's what happened to me, I lost everything. That was how I made my way down to Wall Street. So what happened was, is I had a friend growing up, his name was Michael Falk, and he was just, you know, not the sharpest guy growing up. He was like not the most likely to succeed. That was me. He was like the most likely to be average, this kid. He was a weird looking kid. No one wanted to play. You know the kid no one played with because he had like a funny smelling house and a weird grandma? That was Michael Falk, right? And I, I lose all my money and I hear this rumor about Michael Falk went down to Wall Street and he's making over a million dollars a year. It's 1986. I'm like, Impossible, in fucking no way. I had five dollars, 20,000. It's like three million a year, four million a year right now. I'm like, that's not possible, right? Sure enough, a week later, I'm in the local park, we all hang out, and Michael Falk pulls up in a red Ferrari, a red Ferrari, wearing a $2,000 suit with a gorgeous blonde model. I'm like, I want the fucking model, I want the car, I want the suit, right? I want it all, right? And I'm like, Michael, like, what are you doing? And here's the thing with the stockbroker. They, you know, if you ask like a doctor, hey, how much you make last year, you'll be, excuse me? Ask a real estate broker, what'd you make? Excuse me? Ask a stockbroker, I made a million too, what'd you make? Like a stockbroker will tell you what they make. It's like their fucking calling card, right? So I said, I said, my good's fucking true, right? Any other industry, what did I make last year? Excuse it's a little forward, right? You know, you ask a businessman, ask a stockbroker, oh, I made a million three, right? So I say, Michael, what do you I made a million two last year. Next year I'm gonna make two million. I said to myself, what many of you probably have said to yourself at one point in your life, I said, if this idiot can make a million too, I'll make fucking 10. That's what I said. And just like that, I, I said, I'm gonna be a stockbroker. And I went down to Wall Street and I had to sell myself a job at this point because my resume was not looking very good. I was a dental school dropout who just declared to actually hire me, right? Not that good. So and I went down for this interview. It was at a very big prestigious firm called LF Rothschild, the Rothschild banking family, right? And I went down, it was like 50 kids lined up for this interview. I knew I had to stand out. When I get into my interview, like I start pitching the manager a stock without even knowing what I'm doing, like just making it up as I go along, just using my personality and just trying to sell the guy a stock. And I'm like probably breaking 10 laws in the process. I, mean, I didn't even know what was legal or not back then, right? Not that it would have mattered, right? <laughs> it's close, man. And the guy and the manager says to me, so he's, guy's obviously a fucking genius. He says, goes, goes, I'll tell you, either one of two things are gonna happen to you. Either you're going to be the most famous stockbroker in Wall Street history, or you're going to end up in jail. Well, the guy was a fucking genius. He was right on both accounts. <laughs> and he hires me. And that was when I first walk into this Wall Street border, and I'm watching the kids. They're all in their late 20s, mid to late 20s. And they're all highly educated from good schools, making big money, million bucks a year, 700,000 a year, right? And I'm like, wow. And I'm like a slave making minimum wage. It's cost me more money to commute to get there from Queens. I was living not in the city, right? To go down to Wall Street. And for like seven months, I'm like just watching all these kids make a fortune. And I know my day is coming. At nighttime, I'm going into office buildings selling costume jewelry, office office to try to pay my rent. On the weekends, I'm going to the beach when, I, when the summer comes around to make extra money. But I know that my life is going to be amazing. I'm about to get past my license, you know, past my test, get my license. And finally, my day comes. I pass my test. And my first day as stockbroker, believe it or not, like the movie, October 19th, 1987, Black fucking Monday. And I watch in shock and awe as the market tumbles 508 points on my first day as a stockbroker. LF Rothschild, which was in business for 112 years, shuts its doors <laughs> on my first day. And just like that, I'm out of a job. Even worse, as I you know, went downstairs, the front page of the paper, it's like the death of Wall Street. All brokers will be cab drivers. I'm like, oh, fuck, my mother was right. I should have stayed in dental school, right? <laughs> 
during the day, the kids are walking around saying, oh, shit, the game is over, man. The game. I'm like, what do you mean the game's over? I was a slave. I didn't get to play. Like, oh, no, the game's over, right? I get home, and it even gets worse. My wife is waiting for me. Now, we were broker than broke. Down to all, they were rolling up nickels, dimes, and quarters to pay for shampoo. And let me tell you something, your broke shampoo is fucking expensive, by the way. Anyone's broke knows that, right? Especially with conditioner and girls, right? All right? But she, obviously, you know, she wasn't much of a news bug. So while everybody in the free world knew the market crashed, she hadn't bothered turning on the TV. She was watching Oprah, I guess, right? She took our last $70 and bought a bottle of Dom Perignon because she thought I broke the record. Everyone's like, oh, you're going to break the records on the first day, right? I walk in, she's like, did you break the record? I'm like, oh, fuck, and I collapse in her arms. Start to cry, right? Long story short, which is very difficult for me, by the way, all right? Long story short, I'm literally, I start to cry, and I'm, I'm like, just beside myself, paralyzed by fear, guilt, self-loathing. I have the Midas touch in reverse. Everything I touch turns to shit, right? And I'm like literally ready to just put a bullet in my head. And I feel like about five minutes, because I didn't have more than that. I couldn't pay the rent. So after five minutes of self-loathing, I took a deep breath. We sat down and started looking through the help wanted section. And we found an ad for stockbrokers on Long Island. And I answered the ad. They said, yeah, come down for an interview. It was a gruff sounding voice. And I walk in the door for an interview, and what do I find? Well, I find this really dilapidated firm, and there's a great scene from the movie. So that is incredibly, incredibly accurate. So let me tell you what happened, because I want to make a uh, really jump into the teaching of the straight line here. My money problems disappeared. I broke, that sale was one of the biggest in penny stock history. The average sale was usually $500, right? First month, I made $50,000. Next month, I made $80,000. I broke all the records in the penny stock industry. After about six months, the opportunity came up. The manager approached me to open up our own firm. I quickly realized he didn't know what the fuck he was doing. And I decided to do it myself and open up my own firm. And that's how it started. There's some more stuff on the inner game, but I'm going to skip past it for the sake of time. And I started a firm called Stratton. Now, I didn't start it from scratch. I essentially was what's called an office of supervisory jurisdiction. It's like a franchise, right? So it allowed me to get into business very quickly, right? And I started with 12 guys, some from there from that I took from that firm, and some of my old friends. And just to give you an idea, the average IQ of the person I was employing was like Forrest Gump on three hits of acid, right? <laughs> they weren't like, it was like the deep end of the intellectual gene pool. There was no Ivy League diplomas, no members of the Lucky Sperm Club. These were like basically the, the forgotten sons and daughters of lower class Long Island and New York City. These were kids that were never told by their parents they were capable of greatness. Any greatness they naturally had in them had been essentially conditioned out of them almost since the day they were born. First by their parents, then by their own friends, their school teachers, the media, their just general neighbor where they grew up. By the time they came to Stratton, they had been conditioned to survive, not to thrive. And they walked in the door, and I was teaching them not the straight line, just the, you know, a system that didn't have a name. But it was great. I was a really good sales trainer already. I trained about, about 60 people in the meat business, and I really gave these powerful meetings, motivational. I was teaching things like you know, basic tonality and, and you know, how to close, but it was just not a system with a name. But the firm started doing really well. The average kid was making about 10, 15,000 a month. And we're selling penny stocks to average moms and pops, people with little or no net worth. When I was working on Wall Street, we were selling to the richest 1%. Now, if you saw in that video with Leo, okay, that whole conversation was a real conversation. Like, why are, like, and, and it wasn't 10,000, they dumbed it down a bit for the movie. It was, I said, if I sell someone $100,000 or a quarter million dollars of a penny stock, I get 100,000 in commission? Because those were the size of the trades on Wall Street at the time. When you opened up a big account, they'd put 500,000 into a stock. So that was my, I said, well, so if I sell someone half a million dollars of a penny stock, I get a quarter million in profit, yeah? He goes, well, rich people don't buy penny stocks. Now, normally, I would argue that point, but I was so beaten down, I said, oh, just give me the leads of the poor people and I'll close them. But now, flash forward, I'm in business for a few months, doing really well, and I'm lying about it. The idea pops in my head. Wait a second, why am I calling poor people? I should be calling the richest 1%. So I 
went out and bought a list of the richest 1%. It's called the Dun & Bradstreet list. People that own their own business doing 10 million or more in sales. It was the CEOs, right? I said, let me try to sell them penny stocks. And to my surprise, when I bought this list and called them myself as good as I was, and I did it with my junior partner, the Jonah Hill character, Danny. In, in the movie, it was Donnie. His real name was Danny. And we were doing it together, him and I, while the rest of the firm continued to sell penny stocks. I learned my lesson about like moving on for greener pastures before I had something locked in. So I had the firm running, selling penny stocks, while we were experimenting with a different strategy. To my shock, no one bought. Couldn't sell them penny stocks. Rich people didn't want them. And I was really surprised, right? So I said, all right, well, maybe it's that, now this is, it's different in Australia, because you have stocks that are priced at 20 cents and 50, and they're legitimate companies. You have mining companies. And it's very common that in, in Australia that mining stocks are priced in pennies sometimes, and they become big companies, it happens, right? Not in the US. In the US, a penny stock is considered a piece of shit. Bottom line, right? By sheer virtue of it being a penny stock, it sucks, right? So I'm like, maybe that's what's the problem. Like people saying, oh, how good could it be at 20 cents, right? So I said, let me do something, and, and not to get technical here, but there's something you could do with the stock called the reverse split, where you reduce the outstanding shares, you increase the price of the stock, it's the same fucking thing. Like, it's the same company, but the stock can now be $6 instead of 20 cents. Same company, less shares outstanding. Don't get, doesn't matter the particulars. Just suffice to say, that was what I did. I said, let me reverse split the stock and make it more expensive so people will think it's a better company. That was my idea. And sure enough, a few people bit. Like, no one bit at 20 cents. At $6, a few bit, but not enough. No more, in fact, it was quite worse. We were making less money at the $6 level than by just calling average moms and pops. And that shocked me, by the way. That really shocked I really thought that was going to work. So, as you know, whatever, I said, all right, not working, whatever. And I said, we'll just keep selling penny stocks. About a week went by, and suddenly I'm lying in bed. I always do my best thinking in bed, because I don't sleep that much, right? And boom, the light bulb goes off. And it hits me like a ton of bricks, what's going on, right? I got it. And now, this might seem very obvious to you today, but I can assure you it wasn't back when I was in the thick of it. Sometimes when you're in the thick of something, you can't see the forest through the trees. So watch the dynamic. When I was working with L.F. Rothschild, right? It's L.F. Rothschild, Jordan Belfort, and we were selling stocks like Eastman Kodak or U.S. Steel or IBM or Nabisco, big companies. So let's use, like, for example, IBM, right? So it's these big companies that everybody heard of. So let's, what, let's look at the dynamic. L.F. Rothschild, everyone knew Rothschild, the Rothschild banking name, right? Everyone knew IBM. No one knew Jordan Belfort. Two, two things working in my favor, one against, right? That worked. But now let's shift to the Stratton dynamic. So now suddenly I'm um, Jordan Belfort calling from Stratton, Oakmont, selling a company called Ventura Entertainment. One, two, three strikes and you're out. They didn't know me, they never heard of the company, didn't know the broker term, impossible. Everyone understand that? So the, there was a, a different dynamic and it, it took time for me to run, but once that hit me, I said, I know what I have to do. First thing I did, I said, instead of starting off and selling this Ventura Entertainment, I need to start off with the stock that they all heard of. In marketing, we call that a loss leader. It's a very common strategy where the first thing that you sell, you don't make money on it, or it's a very well-known item, almost a commodity, but it's very well-respected. It opens the door to future business. For that, I chose a company named Eastman Kodak, which now is bankrupt. It was one of the bluest of the blue chips. It was a camera company. For those of you who are very young, this is before digital cameras. Kodak was a multi-billion dollar, well-respected company, one of the best of the best, right? It was a great story because they'd been sued for by Polaroid for patent infringement. So it was a great story about why you should buy now and so, so forth, there's urgency, right? So I picked that company and wrote an incredibly powerful script, right? Second thing I did was I came up with, so I changed this to Kodak. Second thing is I came up with what's called a reframer, a reason why they hadn't heard of Stratton before. 
So what I would call them and say, you probably hadn't heard of Stratton Focus, for the last 10 years, we're strictly an institutional block trading firm, dealing with the select with banks, insurance companies, and pension funds. We've recently opened up our doors to the more substantial private investor. So what I want to do right now is send you out some information on my company, Stratton Oakmont, and get back to you down the road next time we're making a recommendation to our core client base. That was true. Remember, I didn't start Stratton. Stratton had been in business for 10 years. They were an institutional trading firm with banks, insurance, and the, well, that was like the best version of the truth. See, it's called the truth well told. The fact is they lost all their money when the market crashed and were fucking a shell almost. So I didn't say hi, you probably have heard of we're a shittiest little firm ever, but lost all our money in the crash. So I just told a version of the truth that was accurate, but what most important was a reason why they hadn't heard us before a justification why you haven't heard of Stratton. And then I'd say, I just want to send you some information on the firm and get back to you down the road when we have a recommendation to our clients. They're like, yeah, sure, send us the information. Now, what would I send? Not much to send them. Our non-existent track record or a brochure that said nothing. So instead of sending them that, we sent them a letter, good speaking to you, take with my compliments this book. We sent them a book, like yay thick that said how to make money in stocks. It had nothing to do with Stratton, nothing to do with any stock we're ever gonna sell them, just a book. Why? We FedExed them this big, thick book and it landed on their table with weight. So next time we called them back, they felt obligated to at least pick up the phone and speak to us. We found that when we didn't send the book out, you would probably get through to the secretary the second time, maybe once out of 50 times. You get screened. When you sent out the book, you get through seven out of 10 times. That's called reciprocity. It's a powerful sales tool. You give someone something of value, they want to return that value in kind. They're not going to buy from you because you sent them a book, but they'll feel obligated to take the call one more time. You can use that very powerfully in all sorts of ways as a salesperson using a two-call system. How do you get the person back on the phone the second time? It's not always so easy. This makes it much easier. For us, it was magic. So that was the play. We got him back on the phone the second time, and Danny and I started closing him on Kodak. And guess what? It was easy suddenly. Between the book, the new rap, and a stock they heard of, the odds were tipped back in our favor, and we started both opening accounts like water in Eastman Kodak. The average trade was about $10,000. Commission, $50. We're losing money. That's why it's called a loss leader. The plan was, though, you'd call them back three days later, say, hey, Mr. Jones, just going to call to give you a quick update on Kodak. Now, where is Kodak? In one of three places, up, down, or even. If it was up, you'd say, sir, the stock is up a touch, but again, things look great, but the long-term thesis remains intact. We believe litigation sells in the next 90 days. Stock will go much, much higher. That's if the stock was up. If the stock was even, you say, sir, the stock's right, we bought it but the long-term thesis remains intact, things look really good, we expect blah, blah, blah. If the stock was down a point or two, sir, the stock is down in touch, no big deal. Okay, long-term thesis remains intact. Didn't matter. You just touched base to build rapport, spoke for a little bit, hung up the phone, I'll update you next time something happens. End of call. They had back in the day seven days to pay, right? There was seven-day settlement back then. So on the seventh day, the check would hit, and then the plan was to call them back, right? On the seventh day, Danny has his stack of leads, I have my stack of leads. And the plan was now to pitch them Ventura for the second trade. Call them back, say, Mr. Jones, two reasons for the call. Number one, I want to update you on Kodak. Where's Kodak? Up, down, or even. Whichever one it was, you gave that appropriate statement. And you'd go through, yeah, things look really great. Long-term thesis remains intact, so things look really strong right now. Mr. Jones, second reason for the call today. Something else came across my desk. It's a bit speculative in nature, one of our own investment banking deals, sir. If you have 60 seconds, I want to share the idea. You got a minute? That's the setup, right? He's like, shoot, go ahead. You're a stockbroker. That was the plan. So I have Marley's, I'm dying through mine. Danny's dying through his, right? He gets the first contact. So I put my phone down, and he's out in the board, and I'm watching through my window in my office, and I'm watching, he's on the phone for like three, four minutes, and he hangs up the phone. Now, just to give you some context, the average trade in penny stocks is about $1,000 at the high end, 500 to 1,000 bucks, and you can make $500 or 250, right? So he hangs up the phone, and he's got like a weird look on his face, and he walks in my office kind of slowly, he's holding a ticket, 
And I'm like, what happened? He goes, the guy bought $120,000 worth and apologized for working so small. <laughs> I made 80,000 on that one trade. And in that moment, I knew. In that moment, the whole thing, all of Stratton flashed before my eyes. I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, all I have to do is teach these 12 nincompoops how to close rich people, all right? And I'm gonna be a billionaire. I'm gonna be the richest kid in fucking America, right? And the rest will be history. Well, unfortunately, as they also say, easier said than fucking done. As it turns out, trying to train a bunch of barely post-adolescent nincompoops how to close the richest, toughest, meanest businessmen in the world is not just difficult, it was in-fucking possible. After 30 days of trying, they hadn't closed a single account, not even one. Meanwhile, my closing rate was 50%. Danny's was in the high 30s. Theirs was zero. Now, as a business owner, any of you guys are business owners, just imagine we're calling the same leads, pitching the same stock, using the same script, I'm making a fortune, Danny's making a fortune, they're at zero. You'd go, you'd be pulling your hair out of your head. And I tried every technique I knew how to train them and to coach them, nothing would work. And I went on this quest, I read every book, I listened to every tape they had back then. I flew clear across the country to a seminar on the West Coast that had purportedly the top sales traders. And I quickly found out that I was fucked because their shit wasn't even nearly as good as what I was teaching. And if my stuff didn't work and theirs was no better, I was screwed. I came back to the firm, and by now the firm was like, it was like mutiny on the bounty. They wanted to like stop calling rich people because they weren't making any money. They wanted to go back to calling poor people and selling penny stocks. And that's how all of this really started. And they said, you know, they said, can't you give one of your marathon sales training sessions where I'd go for like four or five hours in one night? And I just, it was before the straight line. I would just try to teach them everything I knew about sales, about sounding good, right? I'm like, all right, let's do a marathon tonight. And I knew this was sort of the end of the line here. Either I broke through some way or they were going to resign or I had to go back to selling penny stocks, which I didn't want to do, right? I knew this idea had legs that I could just figure out a way to train them. So we all came back at 7 o'clock. It was 12 people back then, I'll remember this night like it was yesterday for the rest of my life, right? And, I, and they were sitting there with these long faces, and I'm like, guys, like, I don't understand why this is so hard for you. I'm doing it. Danny's doing it. I know you can do it too. What is the fucking problem? Why is this so impossible for you? And at first, there was silence, and after about, you know, 30 seconds, of silence, I'm like, guys, we're not leaving until we get to the bottom. What is going on? They're like, well, guys, there's too many objections. Another goes, yeah, they keep cutting us off. We can't even get our pitches off. Another goes, there's a thousand objections. Another goes, yeah, there's a thousand objections. Another guy, yeah, there's a thousand objections. I'm like, great. There's a thousand? I'm like, yes, there's a thousand. I'm like, great, let's write all thousand down. I want to know all thousand objections. And by the way, I had a, a whiteboard like this one, right? And I said, come on, I want to know all thousand. And what I was going to do was something called like running the wheel, right? I put all the objections in a round circle, and I would show them how to overcome each one. That was my original plan. I'm like, come on, give me one. So after a few seconds, some guy goes, they want to think about it. I'm like, great, they want to think about it. What's next? Someone goes, they want to call back. I say, great, call back. What's next? Bad time of year. Great, bad time of year. What else? Want to speak to their wife. I'm like, great, what else? So they want to speak to their business partner. Like, great, business partner. What else? The silence. I'm like, guys, that's four. We have 996 to go. Let's go. And, and on and on they went. And on and on they went, and on and on they went until the entire board was filled with objections, which at the end of the day was 14 fucking objections. <laughs> and they ran out of objections. And the worst part was it was half of them were repeats of two. I want to speak to my wife, my business partner, my accountant, my lawyer, my best friend. It was speak to someone else. Or it's a bad time of year. It's tax time, back to school time, leap year, groundhog, right? There, were, there was repeats. So in reality, it was like seven original objections. And in this moment, I just like something happened. I just got so angry, you know, and I, I looked at these guys. I'm like, you guys are unfucking believable Like you're whining about all these objections, right? At the end of the day, a thousand objections is 14. Half of them are repeats of two. And then like, 
something just came. I'm like, guys, but you know, even those don't matter. I'm like, don't you get it? And an idea pops in my mind for the first time. I'm like, guys, every sale is the same. And they look at me like, what? Like, you know, every sale's not the same. Every sale's different. People have different needs, different values, different pain points, different objections. They come into the sale with different experiences. Every sale's not the same. I could see by their expressions, they didn't get it. And I'm like, guys, every sale's the same. And then another idea pops in my mind. And for the very first time ever, I drew this long, thin line. I said, watch, guys. It's a straight line. And I drew this long, thin line across the center of the board. I put a big, thick X on either end. I said, now this is your open where the sale begins, and this is your close where the client says, yeah, let's do it. And every once in a while, when you were selling penny stocks, you got one of these perfect, almost like these laid down sales where everything you said, everything you did, the client was like, yes, yes, oh great. They're almost like pre-sold before you even picked up the phone. And it ended up being an objectionless close. They agree with you the whole time. They're like, oh my God, that sounds great. When you told them the price, like, oh my God, that's so cheap. And we said, here's how you get started. Great, let me do it right now. And you close the sale. That's the perfect straight line sale where everything you say, everything you do, yes, 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 right down to the close. The problem is in the real world of sales, those are few and far between. What typically happens, and you would love it, of course, if as a salesperson, you could just literally pitch and they agree with you and it's a yes, yes, yes the whole time, but that's what you want to happen. In reality, you want to go on the straight line. People try to take you off the straight line. They have objections. They have questions. They have concerns. They might cut you off. So you want to keep them on the straight line. They try to take you off the straight line. So what you need to have are these healthy boundaries above and below the line, because they are going to try to take you off the line. It's, you're never gonna have very seldom, 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 this perfect sale where you're pitching and they're just agreeing with you. That's not how it works. People interrupt you, they have questions, they have objections, they have concerns. So you have what are these healthy boundaries above and below the line. When you're inside these boundaries, you are in control of the sale. You're in control of the sale. That means you're essentially managing the flow of the sale from the open to the close. And I'll get into this in much more detail after the break. So you're in control of the sale. Once you go outside the boundaries, you're out of control. The client has assumed control of the sale. In control, out of control. Up here, you lose control. You're spying off the fucking Pluto. Down here to your anus, not a good place to be. Okay, for some of you it's okay, I don't judge, okay? But then, especially nowadays with all social political correctness, it's, oh, it's fine with me, right? Anyway, anyway. who am I to judge, right? <laughs> no, really, so, anyway, don't be sensitive. This is fucking Australia, you're not sensitive here, right? Come on, you guys are tough, you're fucking Aussies, right? Anyway, so what's happening when you're in control of the sale? Well, number one, in the beginning of the sale, the first thing that's happening is you must take control of the sale. Million dollar question is how? How do you take control of the sale? What I realized that night and what started all this was not that they said there was a thousand objections and there weren't. That, okay, that was just stupidity on their part. It was something else they said. They said, we keep getting cut off. We can't even get our pitches off. The rich people are all assholes, right? Well, guess what? I was getting the same objections as they were getting, but not in the beginning. People didn't cut me off. They didn't interrupt me. I was able to get my pitches off. And I, I realized that there was something in the way I sounded, something in the way I would come across to the people from right out of the gate. Whether it was in the stock market, my first day knocking on doors in meat and seafood, or every sales job I ever had, I had a certain way of talking, of carrying myself, that people would sense something about me. And in that instant, it hit me what was going on. And I said to them, I said, you have four seconds four seconds to establish 
Three crucial things. I'll tell you exactly what they are. Number one, if in those first four seconds you're not perceived as being, number one, sharp as attack. You're sharp on the ball. Number two, enthusiastic as hell. And number three, an expert in your field. Most important of all, an expert in your field. Sharp as attack, enthusiastic as hell, an expert in your field. You have four seconds to establish that. If you don't, good luck trying to close on him. Why is that? Well, what this chunks up to, what this really means to the mind of a prospect is they say to themselves, when you're perceived this way, that you're sharp, that you're on the ball, you're a born problem solver. You're not gonna waste their time or yours. Number two, that you're enthusiastic as hell. That what you have must be good. Now, I'm not talking about that over the top, like, oh my God, well, that fucking, that's ridiculous, okay? I'm talking about bottled enthusiasm. It's a, it's a sort of a, a, a urgency, a tone of seriousness and power in your voice. You don't have to be yelling, it could be a whisper, but it's palpable. Bottled enthusiasm. There's a way that you manifest that tone. And number three, most important of all, that you're an expert in your field. And the reason for that is that we have been conditioned to defer, to seek out experts in their fields to solve all problems and eliminate our pain. When we were children, our parents took us to the doctor. We were conditioned to realize that when we're in that office, a special place, special diplomas. When the doctor asks questions, you answer them honestly and forthright. You don't cut the doctor off. You don't answer their questions with questions of your own. When you got older and you were struggling in school, they hired a tutor. When you got older and you're in business, you hired a lawyer or an accountant. We've been conditioned to seek out experts to solve our problems and eliminate our pain. That, that conditioning is powerful. Guys, I'll give you one example. It's a funny one. You go to the doctor now, for those of you over 35, you get to that dreaded point in the appointment where they say bend over and cough and they stick their finger up your butthole, right? Well, just imagine you, you do it because it's a doctor, right? Imagine if it was some like, kid at a school, you're going to bend over, I'm the assistant. Fuck you! <laughs> you haven't earned the right to maybe bend over. You haven't been to eight years of school. In other words, You'll never forget this now, right? The point is, is that when we are in the position, in the, the, the presence of an expert, we obey like school children. You must be perceived as an expert in your field. Because if you're not, what happens? The prospect takes control. What do I mean when I say that every sale's the same? Well, I'll tell you, we have to take a breakdown. I'm gonna tell you exactly what I mean, but what I was referring to is this. In my mind, it was so easy to close because from the first few seconds, I took immediate control of the sale. Because I, and the question obviously is how do you do that? And I'm gonna get into that specifically after the, after the break. But I took immediate control because they perceived me like this, as an expert, sharp, on the ball, so they deferred, they allowed me to control the sale. Once you're in control, what can you do? You can make every sale unfold the same way. You're in control. If you're in control of the encounter, you can now run a strategy. If the prospect is in control, there is no strategy. You're playing defense. You're like going into the boxing match with Mike Tyson. Right? How did Mike, you ever see Mike Tyson's old fights? Everyone was the same. He knocked them out in two minutes. He boxed them into a corner, hit them in the body, bam, one shot, they're out. For Mike Tyson, every sale's the same. Every boxing match is the same. He's running a strategy, he's in control. The novice is reacting, the pro is proactive. So by taking control of the sale, it opens up the possibility, just the possibility that you can make every sale the same. The next step is, well, if I have that opportunity, if I can make every sale the same, what are the steps in the sale that need to occur? Are there certain steps I can run predictably every single time? Are there certain core elements that I need to line up? And if there are, and I know what they are, and I'm in control, guess what? Now it starts to get easy because you can prepare yourself, you can map it all out beforehand, and suddenly, even someone with very little ability, 
a natural talent can now close the way a natural born closer does. Because here's what separates a natural born closer from someone who's not. A natural born closer intuitively does all that. They don't have to think about it. They take control because they know they have to. It's a natural thing they do. They take control, they build rapport, they ask the right questions, they sound good, they know how to, you understand? A natural born closer runs a straight line strategy without thinking about it. The problem is 0.01% of the world are natural born closers. Most people are not. They're somewhere on the continuum to where they're somewhat talented to awful. But once you know the straight line, you can now close in the same way as a natural born closer. And the reason I know that is because what happened that night to those 12 kids who couldn't close a fucking door. <laughs> the next morning when the market opened, they went on an account opening spree that was so profound that within three months they were all millionaires. They told their friends, People started trickling in, then they started pouring in from all over the country and then the world. People would line up at my door, I teach them the straight line system and make them rich. And that was the story of how Stratton started. Now, how it spiraled out of control through drugs and greed is a different fucking story. But at the end of the day, what emerged out of that was the beauty of the straight line, which kept going, why? Because there was nothing wrong with the straight line, it was how I applied it. You have to use it ethically because it's powerful. So when we get back to the break, I'm gonna really dig into the particular elements and show you the ethical way to use this to get fucking rich. Sound good? All right, let's go, let's take a break and enjoy. And wait, before we go, 